Welcome to the Finding Yourself Single podcast. Finding Yourself Single is a podcast for post-40 singles, navigating life after divorce, transitioning to being single, building a new life, trying to create positive family dynamics, and exploring new relationships. Here are your hosts, Brian Berger and Katie Katzman. Well, welcome to the Finding Yourself Single podcast. This is season one, episode three. Listen to all episodes of the Finding Yourself Single podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts and podcast platforms everywhere. Follow the Finding Yourself Single podcast on Instagram at Finding Yourself Single. We've got some followers already. Thank you. And on Twitter at Find Yourself SNG. You can email us with your personal story of how you're finding yourself single or submit topic and guest suggestions at single at gmail.com. All right. In this episode, Navigating the Family Legal System, we are joined by family lawyer Amanda J. List, who is a partner at the Bay Area firm List, Jacobson, Kwok, and Thorndall, LLP. Amanda has been practicing family law since 2004. She graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, Bolt Hall School of Law. You can learn more about Amanda and her firm at ljtlawgroup.com, ljtlawgroup.com. And I will tell our audience that I've known Amanda for several years, so I would call her a friend. This isn't just someone that we randomly picked. Um, And you'll hear that with several of the guests that we're having on in season one. We've got a personal relationship with them. I'm joined now by my co-host on the Finding Yourself Single podcast, Katie Katzman. Katie, thank you so much for joining me here on this podcast. And I'm just overwhelmed by the uh, response that we've gotten so far from listeners to our first two episodes. I'm sure you've heard feedback as well. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. And uh, again, always really glad to be here. This is a really exciting project and we have gotten a lot of great feedback. I have friends in Ireland listening and Canada and uh, of course back here in the States. And um, it's, it's been a really good, a good feedback. Um, And we're just, yeah, excited to keep going and, and bring more topics that are relatable to everybody out there. I want to let our audience know too, and, and I so appreciate Katie, you letting me kind of guide this episode and the conversation with Amanda. This was my experience was kind of the deep dive into the family legal system. You're going to be leading episode four, um, which is going to be divorce without attorneys. And I know you're going to have a great guest on that's going to join us and someone that you know, and who has worked with you. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing how that process all works. Cause again, that wasn't my experience. I wish it was, but it, it wasn't. Right. Right. Yeah. We're going to have Peg McLaughlin from SoCal legal docs join us in episode four. Interestingly enough, there is more crossover than I think we might, you, you might think mm. in hearing your, um, in, in, in listening to the interview with Amanda, the same things have to be worked out, you know, in some way, and they can be worked out with a legal docs person. And, and in essence, you're really just filing for yourself. So uh, if you can find a way to do that between you and your, your, your partner, uh, obviously it's going to be a lot cheaper and along the lines of similar to mediation without the mediator, right? So hmm. 
the very in- it's interesting and i think i hope it's very helpful for people out there to learn more about that process yeah i like that we're providing listeners with kind of two different perspectives and and routes to divorce and i sure like you just said i'm sure there is some overlap but as you'll hear in this episode it, it really behooves you to try and do this as amicably as possible. Um, And Katie, if it's okay with you, I I wanted to kind of share with our listeners my experience with the family legal system, a little bit about my story. And I think it'll give our audience some context for the conversation with Amanda. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. And then when, you know, you go, we go on to the interview, it's easier to connect the dots. So, you know, with, with hearing your background. So, yep, let's, let's go. All right. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I've spent half a million dollars in legal fees over the past 15 years trying to protect my rights as a dad so I could be involved in my daughter's life. If I didn't have that money to fight, I would have lost my daughter when she was three when we got divorced. The family legal system, in my experience, is the most dysfunctional system I've ever been involved in. If you're going to get divorced, you'd better think long and hard about the unpredictability of the arena that you're going to step into. If you can't work things out with your partner, you're leaving decisions about your family in the hands of a judge who doesn't know you. He's never, or she has never seen you with your child and who sees dozens of cases every day. I had a wonderful relationship with my daughter for the first 15 and a half years of her life. I cherished our times together And my best times of my life were with her, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. I gave her a wonderful home with neighbors who adore her. I was a consistent presence in her life, prioritizing her over anything else in my life. I surrounded her with family and friends who love her. We traveled the country together, and we even rescued a dog together who lived with me. I am not perfect, but I can tell you that the people who know me best have always said that I'm one of the best dads they know, especially given the rings of fire that I've had to jump through just in order to be involved in my daughter's life. I have never tried harder at anything in my life than being a good and present dad. I believe that being a parent is the most important role that we have. My ex-wife never wanted me to be in our daughter's life. She has proven that over and over again with her actions Now I'm estranged from my daughter, as I've also mentioned in a previous episode. She's chosen not to have contact with me, our family, our friends, and I don't know if I'll ever speak with her again. My daughter has the dog we rescued, and I will likely never see our dog again. I will always hold space for my daughter, and I hope with every fiber of my being that she wants me in her life again someday. I've apologized to my daughter in therapy for the fact that she was caught up in the middle of this tug of war between me and her mom. But my only other choice was to walk away from her at age three when we were getting divorced. And I just wasn't going to do that as I felt she needed a dad as well as our family and friends in her life. The system failed me and it failed my daughter. Over the past 15 years, there were judges, lawyers, custody evaluators, and therapists who didn't protect my daughter's relationship with me. Children are better off with two engaged parents than only one. Every study will show you that. 
When you are getting divorced from someone whose goal is to destroy the relationship between you and your child, you rely on the court to protect that relationship. But the family legal system helped crush my soul instead. So let my story be a cautionary tale to you. You can be a good parent and fight fiercely in court to protect your relationship with your child and your child's relationship with your extended family and friends. But once you leave things in the hands of a judge, all bets are off. And even if the judge rules in your favor in family court, as I had happened, there's the loophole of emancipation in juvenile court that cancels out the family court's ruling. In this episode, I hope we are able to give you a raw and real look at the family legal system. If you're considering getting divorced, pay close attention. If you're in the process of getting divorced, pay even closer attention. Of all the episodes of season one of this podcast, this one is the hardest for me. Thanks, Katie, for letting me share some of my story. Well, you are welcome, but thank you for sharing your story, Brian. And, you know, it's not an easy story to tell. It's extremely difficult. And I don't think we ever will get over these things. It's not, you know, something to get over or forget. It's, it's part of, it becomes part of our life. You know, these, this story is your life and it's, it's difficult. So I, I appreciate you, you, you sharing it um, with me and with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, as I've said a few times, and and I know you're doing the same thing, so I I commend you on your bravery as well. We're trying to be vulnerable with our audience, and this episode, I I feel like I'm as as vulnerable as I can be. Yeah, well, the thing is too is there's divorce is one thing, but losing our children is a completely separate topic. That is that is something that you know only. I think if you've been a parent or you've had a parent, obviously, you know, we all and to be separated in some way is something that we can't even couldn't even describe. I mean, I can tell you that in my marriage, we probably stayed together until they were both legal adults for that reason. It was never discussed. But well, it was discussed that we we would have to stay together no matter what. But I always kind of thought that was like that was a positive thing. But I think that that's part of why we stayed together. 26 years and not everybody, you know, you can't, can't do that. So you're forced to do something like, you know, go into the family legal system and, and, and fight for, to be a part of your, your, your children's lives. And it's, it's imagine it's unimaginable. And um, you're going to be sharing a lot of the details of that to help people that are going through it, which will be, I think a, a very helpful piece of, um, episode for everybody. Yeah. I mean, as we talked in episode one, like I always thought I was going to write a book and this is the replacement for the book, this podcast that you and I are doing. And um, I feel like the conversation with Amanda List is a deep dive into the legal system. And I hope that it gives people tangible nuggets that they can take away and say, maybe I can apply this to, to my situation or my God, what a miserable system. We need to go to therapy or we need to work through our issues because this is, is not the arena that we want to enter. So I do think it's a raw and real look at the system. And, and, you know, certainly that was a goal of mine to be able to bring that to our audience. And, and I hope it helps people. Right. Right. Uh, there are a few things I noticed that listening to the conversation that were really helpful. Do you mind if I say, um, please go over a couple. 
I think it was, it's really helpful. Amanda talks about what to look for in an attorney and it's a lot simpler than one might think. I think sometimes we think we're think we're out of fear. Uh, people will be thinking like, you know, you know, really big, you know, I need big results. I need somebody high power. I need this or that. And she's, it's very basic with what her advice is, which is just really aligning with this person, like really making sure you connect with this person. And that's very good sound advice, especially at a very emotional time in your life. And I have plenty of friends who have done not that, right? They went for, you know, maybe some of those very powerful and it, it didn't make it any easier, probably made it a lot harder. Um, another a point she drives home is that if you can go through mediation, mediation is the way, especially if you have children. And I think that's really interesting because you know, if it can be worked out, why wouldn't you want to work it out, be the ones to work it out? So I think that's that's a really great point that she really touches on uh, several times in your conversation. And then um, enforcing a court order, how that can be really difficult. So not just to think that it can be enforced. And I know that with my process, that did come up as well. And even uh, my specialist said, you know, it's going to be really hard to get that enforced. And I thought, well, it's in the legal agreement, right? But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy to get it enforced. So there's a lot to learn. And, and uh, like you say, a lot of little nuggets to learn from this episode. I mean, look, she mentions this and everything you just mentioned is is definitely a highlight of the conversation. For most people, this is one of the most miserable experiences and emotional experiences that they will go through. It's the destruction of a family. I've said to family law lawyers before, I'm like, how can you do this? How, how can you watch the destruction of a family? And, and you know, some want to help the families uh, as best they can, but it's really hard. It's really hard to watch the destruction of a family. Um so it's an emotional process and finding a lawyer who can advocate for you and frankly, your relationship with your child, if children are involved, is really important. It's really important. But as you'll also hear Amanda talk about, client control is really important. There's people who come in and they're emotional and they come in with grand plans of whether it's false allegations or, you know, I want all the assets or I want hundred percent of the time with the kids or having a lawyer who's going to tell you the truth and say, look, this isn't how this is going to work. This is how it's going to work most likely. And, and having some client control is also important because I've seen cases where someone comes in and they just want the, the lawyer to be the filer. Like this is all the things that I want you to do. I don't need your advice. I already have been given advice. I just need you to file this, 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 and this. And some lawyers like Amanda, good lawyers, they're not going to be put in that position. And they're not going to be put in that position because they have to work in their community on an ongoing basis. So if they're filing baseless stuff down the road, that's probably going to come back at them in some way, shape, or form where a judge remembers that they filed something that was baseless or you know, a custody evaluator, whoever it may be says, oh yeah, that had no merit to it. We were just going through the motions. They were basically just a puppet for their client. So be ready to be held accountable by your lawyer too, who will stand up to you if it's a good lawyer and say, no, this is not a good idea. This is baseless. It doesn't have fact behind it. It doesn't have merit behind it. I advise you to do this. And, and look, I've seen people fire two, three, four, five lawyers 
until they find a lawyer that will just be the puppet. And mm-hmm. um, it makes it a much longer process and it incites the emotion even more and it makes everything longer and, and drawn out. So, but right. you know, yeah. the, the one thing I just want to say too is, and, and Amanda mentions this takes two to tango, right? One person can go in with the best of intentions and want to do this as cleanly and amicably as possible. But if the other person isn't on the same page, you can't act for two. You can only act for yourself. Right. Right. Well, and back to what you were saying, um, is ideally you're going to interview attorneys and find someone that you're really aligned with. Now, that's a, it's a very emotional time depending on where you're at in your process. And that can be very difficult to do. Maybe you feel like you're in a rush and you just want to get somebody and get going. But I would say that's probably a time to take the time. In my experience, I did interview an attorney. I decided not to go with them. But um, I was really glad that I did that and I made a different decision. I think that that would be a really, I mean, that's the critical position decision right there is, you know, who you're going to choose and they're going to choose you as well, right? It's not, it's not just one way. And then another point I think that's really interesting is that the legal system is really taking over for parents that cannot make the agreement on their own. So you realize if you're going to court, you're putting it in the hands of the legal system. And as you have said, it's a broken system. So you know, know that going into it, that um, this is, a, this is, reinforcing, you know, your inability to solve the problem, make solutions for whatever reason. And uh, it sounds pretty, pretty tough, pretty rough, but it's the truth. It's the truth. I mean, the best way I can explain this to the audience is imagine an emergency room doctor. Someone comes into the emergency room and you want to help them, but every day you're going to see people die on the table. And if you took every single death to heart, you wouldn't be able to function. So you become numb to it at a certain degree. I'm sure it it impacts you, but it would cripple you if every single person who died on your table just gave you, you, you wanted to leave the profession. So the reason I bring this up is it's the same with judges and frankly, with family lawyers. They deal with hundreds of thousands of these cases. I mean, one out of every two people in the US gets divorced. So if you got so ingrained and so attached to every single case and you spent all the time in the world on it, the system wouldn't move forward. It would just come to a grinding halt. And frankly, the people involved in it, you know, if they weren't somewhat numb to it, they wouldn't be able to function too. Cause they'd be sad every day going, Oh my gosh, like look at what's happening with this family. So I bring that up because People have to know that going in. Like, even if you have, like, I've had a lawyer who, Brian, you're a good dad and Brian, you're doing the right things and like encouraging and was an advocate. But at the end of the day, he's not going home going, oh, I'm not sleeping for weeks on end because of Brian's case. Like he's moving on to the next case. So it is a callous kind of distant system. And you have to know that going in. Everyone goes in and... And I thought this too, like you think you're the only person getting divorced and you want your lawyer to spend 24, seven, 365 with you on your case. And they just can't, they have other cases. The judges have other cases. And um, this is not a fast moving system. So you may have something that literally sits in the court for months or even years. 
and you're going, oh my gosh, like I want that final parenting plan or I want the final vacation plan or I want the final, you know, phase three to come. So I know that's going to be the the final phase of the parenting plan. And it takes a long time for the court to make decisions. So again, if you're going to enter this arena, these are all things that you need to know going into it. Right. Not to mention the mental health of both participants, uh, because, yeah. you know, that in, in not, not to say it has to be something serious, but even just the emotional downfall that you're going through, but it could be something deeper. And I've seen friends where, you know, the partner doesn't even show up to court. So it just drags on forever. And they're not, you know, it's, there's so many things that can come into play. So um, yeah, put on your seatbelts, <laughs> you know, get ready. It's, it's, it's not the only part of divorce, I think, but it, I, when people talk about divorce, it's often what they think of is what they went through in the court and what they went through with their attorneys. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I don't, I don't have to think of that part of it for me. I didn't, it wasn't easy, but it, it certainly didn't go through a, you know, a battle. So I'm very grateful for that. Well, and the last thing I'll say is this, and, and, you know, I say this later on in the episode too, think of your children, if you have children involved in this, I mean, if there's family court, usually there's children involved. It's not just two partners getting divorced, but think of your child, what is in their best interest. And again, the default position is usually, unless there's abuse involved, a child is better off with two parents instead of just one child is better off with both sides of the, of the family and the village of friends on both sides versus just one. So as you're going through the family legal process, try and put yourself in your child's shoes and think, what would they want? And, you know, sometimes they're three, like my daughter was and, and mommy, daddy, why are you getting divorced? Like, I don't understand this. You guys are adults. Why can't you just figure this out? And that's a really hard thing to explain to a three-year-old. When they're older, they understand a lot more and they still don't understand why can't you guys just figure it out? And in most cases, they want a relationship with both parents. So, you know, we use some curse words in this episode. I'll give you warning. So I'm just going to say it now. Put your shit aside as best you can and think of your kids and think about how this is impacting them. And, you know, as you listen to this conversation with Amanda, I think that will be reinforced over and over again. All right, Katie. Well, without further ado, here's my conversation with family lawyer, Amanda List. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on the Finding Yourself Single podcast. Before we get started, I want to tell our audience a few things, a few disclaimers here. Every family law case is different. What Amanda says on this podcast should not be relied on as legal advice. And no attorney-client relationship is established by virtue of you listening to this podcast. So those are the ground rules. Amanda, welcome in and thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. You've been practicing for many, many years. I couldn't think of anyone better than you to come on and and talk about the family law landscape. Let's start with this. When people are considering getting divorced, they haven't made the decision yet. They're just considering it. If they're considering it, they should probably do it. Okay, why? 
because they're already to that point. Okay. And what? That's my opinion. That's not a fact, but right. I, I feel like, and this is opinion, if you're interviewing attorneys and really thinking about it and starting to do the groundwork, like establishing separate bank accounts and things of that nature, most likely without the um, consent or even knowledge of your partner, you're probably to that point. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're going to get divorced and you have children, these are some of the things that you can probably expect, right? You're going to pay child support. You're probably going to pay some spousal support. Or receive. Or what? Or received. Correct. Um, There's going to be a division of assets. Usually it's 50-50, right? Depending on the jurisdiction, but for the most part. In a community property state, yes. Okay. And you could have a loss of custody. So I lived in Oregon and Oregon is the sole custody state. So if you can't agree on custody, you fight for custody and it's only sole custody. So you could have a loss of custody as was the case for me. Right. So, I mean, it's different in every jurisdiction. California has the default position, although it's not absolutely necessary, but the default position is that you will have shared custody and that's in the best interest of the children. I do understand that Oregon law, I do have some familiarity with Oregon law. That's a different system where, for whatever reason, the powers that be have decided that it's in the children's best interest to invest decision-making in one parent or the other. And you have to differentiate between physical custody and legal custody because they're not the same thing. So my understanding of Oregon law, and I could be wrong because I'm a California attorney, but my understanding is that they vest legal custody, which has to do with the health, safety, and well-being of the children, religious education, things of that nature, in one parent because Oregon has decided that it makes more sense for the children to stop having that fight and trying to get people to agree on a therapist or a, you know, Catholic school as opposed to some Jesuit school or whatever in one parent, I assume, to kind of tamp down on all the arguments. California is different. It's generally uh, legal custody is joint and there's uh It doesn't mean what people think it means. It doesn't mean in California that absent a court order that says you have to agree on a particular thing like enrolling kids in school or whatever, that you have to have an agreement. It doesn't actually mean that in California. What the code says is, unless the court has stated in specifically that you have to have mutual consent to do whatever, therapy or to have your kids vaccinated or whatever it is, either parent is given the authority to make those decisions. Now, in practice, people try to agree in this state. And generally, I counsel people, don't go making huge decisions about your children without trying to get the consent of the other party. But absent an order that says there has to be mutual agreement, one party can make a decision. Okay. 
If you're going to get divorced and you're going to hire a family law attorney, what should listeners be looking for? And I know it's not one size fits all. Sometimes you're going to need someone aggressive. Sometimes you're going to need someone who's really an expert with finances. Sometimes you might need someone who's really good with uh, custody battles. But in general, when someone's going to hire a family attorney, what should they be looking for? I think a good fit is more important than people really understand. You're about to go through a situation which hopefully you haven't gone through before and hopefully you're not going to go through again, although we do have recidivists. I've done multiple divorces for particular clients, um, but hopefully this is a once kind of thing and you want, you're going to go through something that is really personal, is life-changing, and a good fit is really important. So you need an attorney who's going to align with you on, you know, custody, especially if there's children involved, because that's the most important thing. But understand, like, what your goals are and is willing to work with you to get those goals. I have people that come to me all the time who tell me their goals, and I tell them, I'm not that lawyer. I'm not going to do that for whatever reason. You know, I, I don't think it's right or I think it's overly complicated. Not that I'm not able to handle it, just that I think that they're muddying the water so much that it, it's unreasonable. So I think having an attorney who aligns with your goals is probably the most important thing. Um, obviously, you want somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, and has a good reputation because it does matter that your attorney is respected by the court and even the court staff. The court staff is very important. Yeah, the court staff, like, is that the judge? Is it opposing counsel? Explain who the court staff is. I'm talking about the clerks in particular because the clerks are, you know, the, the mechanism that gets everything done. The judges do what they do and they're, obviously the most important portion of the court, but the inner workings of getting things done, um, the court staff is very important. And it's really important to have in your law office, a staff that has a rapport with the court staff. In my experience, I've seen lawyers, family lawyers, who I would say enable their clients. They will do whatever their client says um, as long as the client pays them. You, I know, because we're friends, are not that type of family lawyer. So client control is a big part of being a family lawyer. Can you tell our audience what client control is? Okay. So client control, I at the most basic level, is the ability to tell your client I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to use swear words on this podcast, but sure. whether or not they're completely full of shit and have clients believe you. So I think it's really important for an attorney not to be a yes man or yes woman and say, yeah, whatever you want. And if that's what you want as a client, you can find that. You can get that. But I frequently tell clients, I'm not going to do that because long after your case is over, I still have to practice in this county. 
And I'm going to look like an idiot if I go and argue some ridiculous, you know, position that I know is not supported by the facts or by the law and frankly, isn't even in your best interest. So I think having client control is the ability to tell your client, you're crazy, that's not reasonable, you shouldn't even ask for that and have them believe you. And it's really important that you establish that rapport with a client because they need to believe you when you tell them, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. There's no chance on God's green earth that that's going to happen. And if you ask for that, you've given the court sort of an image of you that's going to carry through your whole case. So if you ask for something ridiculous with respect to, you know, division of bank accounts or whatever it is, and the court thinks you're full of it, then later on, when you ask for something that is reasonable, that maybe what might be what we call a wobbler, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt because you've taken such ridiculous standpoint previously. So I think client control cannot be underestimated. The importance of being able to tell your client, hey, no, you're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. It's not in your best interest not only is not in your best interest now, it's not in your best interest through this whole process because you're going to lose all credibility with the court. How often does someone come into your office, they're emotional, and, <laughs> they, have an, and, and they have an ax to grind against the other parent, and they want to throw something explosive in the water, and they say, I want to make accusations against the other parent. And it, you know, if, if this is how you start the case, it kind of puts one party on the defensive. Is that, I, I've talked to a lot of people where that's a commonly employed strategy. Um, and again, I think this is where client control comes in, where, you know, some lawyers will say, sure, we'll file a restraining order, or sure, we'll go along with this with no tangible uh, instances of abuse or facts. Um, and again, it, it muddies the waters, but some lawyers will say, no, I'm not doing that. And we're not starting off the case in that manner. Well, then I fall into that category because I, one of my absolute pet peeves is, is people trying to use the DV system to get a leg up in litigation. It's totally inappropriate. It's not good for the children. And it's, it's, it's just, Throwing a bomb unnecessarily, that is not to say at all that DV is not a problem and that we need to address it when it's really there because we absolutely do. People need protection. Men need protection. Women need protection. Children need protection. There is a time and a place for that. But if you come into my office and you're like, he cheated on me, I want a restraining order, I'm going to say, you know, I'm sorry for your trip here. I'm not going to charge you for the five minutes of my life that we just spent on this. You need to find another lawyer. I, I don't use that as a tactic. And I don't think any good lawyer does or should. And for our listening audience, DV is domestic violence, correct? Yes. Yes. I'm talking about the, yes, domestic violence restraining orders. Okay. Um. Another commonly used tactic that I've heard people use is if they know they're going to be getting a divorce, 
every city has their aggressive pit bull lawyers that you wouldn't want to be sitting across the courtroom from. And you can go meet with those lawyers. And ethically, if your soon-to-be ex goes and meets with them after you do, they're not supposed to take your ex on as a client. Is that, is that am I correct in, in that strategy? I have not employed that strategy, but I've heard of people using that strategy. Yeah, it's sort of conflicting out. And uh, we try to avoid that in our office by not giving free consultations. Because if you give free consultation, there's nothing stopping a litigant who has no intention of hiring you coming into your office, spending a half an hour of your time just to make sure that the other side can't do it. And we don't, you know, we're wise to that game at my office. We've been around, I mean, between the three of us, I think we probably have 60 years of experience. We're not, I I don't, I understand why you would want to do it, but it's not a good practice and it's kind of frowned upon in the legal community. All right. Sometimes in cases, I would say where kids may not be involved or even if kids are involved, uh, mediation is attempted at the beginning before you go to the knockdown drag out and you know, you start filing things and you go to court. When would you recommend trying mediation? Would you always recommend trying mediation before you go to greater lengths uh, in the court system? To the extent that you can work things out without putting the decision making about what's going to happen in your life in a stranger's hands, I, I think it's great. You should do it. And I encourage many of my clients to do it. I'd say most of my clients, the ones I don't counsel to start with mediation are the ones who were, that it is clear that there is such an extreme power dynamic problem that one client is going to be absolutely steamrolled and isn't going to stick up for themselves and won't have an advocate there to help them because the mediator's job is to kind of counsel you on what the law says without saying, you should do this or you should do that. They're, they're there to tell you, this is what the law says. This is what's expected. How do you want to work it out? In some cases, there's a, a, a power dynamic that is so skewed that it's not really helpful. But for most people, I don't know that most is true, but a lot of people that come to me, I say, hey, go to mediation. I will help you find a mediator. I'll be your consulting attorney. Don't sign anything without talking to me. But try it. It certainly saves a lot of money in aggravation if you can do that. But everybody has to be on board. It takes two people to tango in those cases. And that's the hard thing, I think, especially when kids are involved. If two people can't agree, then... The other person, and I'll use my case as an example, I wasn't willing to walk away from my daughter when she was three and just not see her anymore. So, okay, mediation didn't work. Now we've got to go to battle. And um, as you well know, and I'll say this loud and clear to the audience, and I announced in episode one, I was involved in this system one way or another for 15 years. I spent half a million dollars. I am not a Silicon Valley billionaire. I am not a pro athlete. That's a lot of money to me. Um, 
the longer the conflict goes on, the more money you're spending on lawyers and therapists and custody evaluators and all the people that are involved in the system. So how do you explain that on your end? And and there's probably a little bit on the other end too, where maybe you talk to opposing counsel and say, look, these people are going to spend all their money. Um, Is there a way that we can get them to agree so they're not in the knockdown drag out or does it take two to tango like you said i would say for me i do not go a full five days of work in a row without saying to some client or another keep it up and you're going to send my kid to college instead of yours it is what it is and you can tell them that and maybe they'll listen to you and maybe they won't in california where there's children involved, mediation is mandatory at family court services. So you're going to go one way or the other. Some counties are recommending counties and some counties are not recommending counties. I practice largely in Alameda County, which is a recommending county, which I find really useful, right? Because it gives people an idea of what's going to happen before they actually go into court. They should get their mediation reports in advance. If they made agreement, those agreements will be, you know, recited. And if they haven't made agreements, the family court services mediator will make recommendations. And the courts take those to heart, those recommendations. And a lot of times I will tell clients, your first step is to convince the mediator. Um, I don't know that that answers your question, but I, I do counsel people to try to be agreeable because in the end, If you're not agreeable, then you are putting your life's decisions in the hands of a stranger and an educated stranger, a stranger who knows what they're doing and knows the law and has done this before. But wouldn't you rather make your own decisions about not your child, what school they're going to go to and, you know, whether they're going to have vaccinations and whether they're going to go to therapy and what therapist they're going to see? Obviously, it's best for the parents who love their children and know their children to make those decisions. And through mediation or, you know, some other kind of cooperative means. But in the end, some people just have to be told what to do. Okay, so I want to talk about the judge in a minute and the role the judge has. But, you know, again, I'm using my own personal experience. I wasn't willing to walk away from my daughter. So what do you do? I mean, literally, Amanda, I felt a desperation because my only choice was to continue being dragged down the gravel road on the back of a pickup truck. Um, I mean, seriously, uh, that's what it was. And visual is amazing, Brian. Well, I'm going to I'm going to credit Alec Baldwin with that visual because he talks about that being his experience in his book uh, where he talks about divorce and you're just hanging on for dear life. So what do you do when the other person isn't agreeable? You don't want to give up your relationship with your child. And like me, you're just trying to hang in there. You know, this is going to cost money. You know, this is going to be dramatic. But you know, if you don't hang on to the back of the pickup truck, you don't see your child. You go to battle. Yeah. There's only two options. Yeah. And, And that's what I did. And. Um, so now let's talk about the role of the judge. You referred to the judge as the stranger a couple of minutes ago. You put your hand, you put everything in the hands of a stranger. 
I had three different judges during my 15 years. And the thing that always well, struck Well, you're lucky. Well. Only three? Yeah. Well, one, we didn't see for a long time. Um, and then we had two in the last, you know, couple of years before my daughter emancipated, which we'll get to in a little bit. But the judge is someone who, like you said, they're sitting on the bench. They've never seen you with your child. They're only getting information from maybe a custody evaluator, maybe a therapist. Obviously, the lawyers are, are you know, giving them briefs ahead of the trial or the hearing. But this is someone making a long-term decision about your relationship with your child, and they know very little about you. So it is a leap of faith, and the judge is playing God when you go into these courtrooms, is my experience. Would you agree with that? I don't know that I'd say playing God. They're doing their job, right? They have a job to do for whatever reason reason maybe one party's at fault maybe both parties are at fault maybe the lawyers are at fault that's possible you've come to a place where you are no longer capable you collectively are no longer capable of making a decision on your own so what they are doing is their job they are saying okay you couldn't decide we have a mechanism to deal with that we're going to decide so i wouldn't say it's playing God necessarily, because I do think judges play an important role. And I think they get criticized a lot. But my experience with most judges, not all of them, but certainly most judges is they actually care. Their their job is not to punish you. Their job is not to criticize you. Their job is to, hey, two people have come to me presenting diametrically opposed positions. Maybe one of them is absolutely wrong, but I find that's rarely the case. I find that there's a little bit of truth in what both sides are saying. And so if you come to a judge, their job is to make a decision. It's not like they're knocking on your door and saying, hey, come outside. I want to make a decision about your life. For whatever reason, you've come to that place in your existence where you have to submit your grievances to a third party. Obviously, it's best for you to avoid that. Well, and I want to stress to our audience, too, and I'm sure you can back this up. This is not a quick process. This takes place over no. sometimes months, sometimes years. Again, you're racking up legal fees. You may see a judge a few times before the judge actually makes a decision on something. And when I say a few times, I'm not talking about three days in a row. It could be over the span of months. I've had an experience where, you know, we saw a judge over several months and then finally, you know, at the end, the judge rendered his decision. But this is not a quick process. So people who think you're going to get divorced quickly and move on with life, I want to tell you, that's not how this works. And it's incredibly frustrating for the parties to go back and bang their heads on the wall again and again and again and give examples of what's going on and blah, blah. And it's also incredibly frustrating for the lawyers. I absolutely hate continuances. It drives me nuts. But you have to understand that if you're going to submit a huge decision about your life to a judge, and it's a good judge, they need time to think about it. They need time to gather evidence. They need to say, okay, I need more input 
from your child's therapist or, you know, some other kind of collateral contact. It, it is frustrating, but it, and it is time consuming. And I know that's expensive. But for the most part, judges want to make the right decision. And that takes information and that takes some consideration and some thought. And, you know, you have to kind of put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You know, it is their job, of course. But I know that a lot of judges struggle with making decisions about other people's children. It's really hard. The other thing I want to bring up here and, and get your thoughts on is a court order. So again, I'm going to use my own personal experience. I had a court order that was in place for 13 years. And I spent a lot of money to get that court order and the language in the court order to protect my rights with my daughter. When I would see her, um, you know, my rights around my relationship with my daughter. The first time that this court order got taken in front of a judge and tested, it was not enforced. And so one of the things I want to tell our audience is just because you have a court order doesn't always mean that that order is going to be enforced. You could spend all this money and sometimes the order is not enforced. In your experience, Amanda, how do judges decide to enforce an order or not? And I know it's not one size fits all, but I mean, is it 90% of the time a judge is going to enforce a court order? Or is that another case where they need more information and they may might take some time? It depends on what kind of order you're talking about. If it's an order to pay support, it is an order. It is not a suggestion. It is what it is. It is not a court suggestion. It is a court order. The word order is the operative word, right? So if it's about you're going to pay $1,500 a month in child support to available uh, half on the 1st and half on the 15th, that's really clear. That's It's it's hard to mis, misinterpret that. So it's pretty easy to get a court to enforce that because an order has been made. There's been evidence provided that it's the right order. They put it into the formula. The formula spits out a number. It's already been deemed appropriate by the guideline. And so courts are more likely than not to absolutely enforce that to the letter. Right. So in my case, custody orders are different, right? Because children more parenting age, time, family dynamics change, things happen. Somebody gets a new partner, somebody gets a new job, somebody wants to move to a different county or state or country. Uh, you know, so I would say on financial issues, the courts are very likely to enforce the orders as written. And there are mechanisms to get that done. There's content, um, things of that nature. Family law orders on, on child custody issues are a little more difficult to enforce because it might be the case that an order is made and the child, the child says, not doing that. Well, the court's not going to throw the kid in jail. The child, the court's not going to hold the child in contempt. So it's it's more difficult to enforce orders where personality as opposed to numbers are involved. Okay, so parenting time and custody, yeah, harder to yeah. enforce as the child gets older. Correct. Versus, uh, you know, as you said, support. And the right. the finances and the formula 
around that. All right, let's back up. If you're getting divorced and you're having a custody battle, um, oftentimes a custody evaluator is assigned because again, the judge can't, you know, get down from the bench and go, Hey, I'm going to follow this couple around and see them with their child. So they assign a custody evaluator who does spend the time and, um, do the report and then obviously makes their recommendations to the judge. But what's the general role of the custody evaluator and how much do judges put stock in what the custody evaluator writes in their report? A lot, a lot, because if the court is going to go, and it's not often, it's sometimes, I, it's not 50% of the time. I wouldn't even say it's 25% of the time a custody evaluator gets involved, like an actual custody evaluator is going to come to your house, look in your cabinet, see what you're feeding your kids, talk to their teachers, talk to your, you know, child's best friend's mother about when the child comes to their house for playdates, how they behave. I mean, that's a really involved uh, sort of analysis of what's going on. So if the court's going to go to that link, the court is going to put a lot of stock in what the custody evaluator says. Again, this all costs money. Custody evaluators take lots of money, you know, not days, not weeks, but months to come up with months their report. In the meantime, the couple is in limbo. Oftentimes there's a temporary parenting plan put into place while the custody evaluator is doing that person's due diligence and, and writing the report before you bring it in front of the judge and come up with the final arrangement, right? Right, which is all the more reason that the court is going to take what the custody evaluator says very seriously and is not, in my experience, likely to deviate drastically from what's recommended. Okay. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Again, this is my experience. False allegations, whether they're given to the custody evaluator, whether they're brought out to the judge in court from opposing counsel. Um, how impactful can those be in cases? Very, and which is why I am loath to make allegations unless I, I personally believe they're true. Um, I'm not an expert in any kind of uh, mental health field at all. Um, but if I'm not convinced, it's not likely that a court's going to be convinced. And I just think it's so detrimental to the children when one parent is just using um, allegations of, you know, domestic violence or God forbid, you know, sexual abuse of the children or something awful like that as a means to get um, a leg up in litigation. And in California, and I don't know about other jurisdictions because I'm, you know, kind of a one trick pony. I'm California and California only. Um, there are some pretty draconian results if one person makes false, knowingly, makes false allegations of abuse of a child against the other parent, the repercussions of that are really serious. And I don't, it hasn't happened in my career. I have not been on the end of uh, 
someone making false allegations and the court discovering that they were false allegations and tagging my client, which frankly, they would deserve. I mean, any client who does that kind of deserves what they get. What are those penalties? Is it loss of custody? Is it financial? Is it jail time? Like, what are those uh, penalties if you make false allegations in California and they bust you? Uh, Well, definitely loss of custody. I don't know. I mean, financial, I mean, they can make you pay um, attorney's fees as sanctions under Section 271 of the Family Code in California. And they can be significant sanctions. You can pay all the other parties uh, legal fees plus any fees for like the custody evaluation and therapy and things like that. Um, I have not ever seen anybody go to jail for it. Although, you know, I can see why that might be reasonable to, you know, take somebody's liberty away for being a degenerate liar. I mean, because think of the harm that this is on the child, right? Because then the child has to go talk to a custody evaluator or a therapist or whomever about, you know, these really personal matters. And dad is saying, you need to say that mom did this. And the child doesn't want to say it because it's not true. What are, you, what are you teaching your child that they should lie? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's bad all around and I strongly discourage it. You just talked about the penalties for false allegations. Should there be penalties and are there penalties for parental alienation? Or again, is this something the court looks at as hoodoo voodoo and that's just psychological and and we don't deal with that here? Well, courts are not a monolith, right? There are different judges and different judges bring to their courts different beliefs, right? There's the law. We can read the law and we can apply the law, especially where like finances are concerned. Numbers are easy. Um, but where there, okay. if you're asking me, Brian, and you and I have discussed this, you know, we are friends and we've talked about it at length. I believe parental alienation is a real thing. 100%. I have no doubt that it is. Does it happen in every case? No, it does not. In some cases, I can't understand why the one parent is being as nice to the other parents as they are when the other parent is just ridiculous. But it absolutely happens. It's not a myth. In my opinion, again, I'm not a mental health professional, but based on my experience, it absolutely is true. And there are penalties. I I put that in air quotes for that which is loss of custody, because under California law in particular, if the parents just absolutely positively cannot get along, then the court has to award custody to the parent who is more likely to promote a relationship with the other parent. So if you had a client that came to you and said, I think there's parental alienation going on on the other side, is there a defense to it, Amanda? Or is it just... I, I got to hope this gets better. Like, what do you do? Well, as you're well aware, Brian, there are some cases that it doesn't matter what you do. Right. The damage is so extreme that you can't undo it. And you and I have had discussions about how, where I think you should go from here that have nothing to do with the family court. Um, but when it's so hard, right? 
Because part of the alienation is the child is so convinced that the alienating parent is right, that even if the court says to the alienating parent, hey, knock it off, the damage is done. Yeah. So the other part of my experience that I want to let our listeners know about, and, and it does come into play. So as the child gets older, the court is going to listen to their wishes more about what they want to do. You know, it, there's a big difference between being three and being 14, for example. Yes. Um, emancipation is a loophole, is an option. So again, I'm going to use my experience is the family court ruled one thing, and it's that I had rights with my daughter. My daughter was over the age of 17. Now, I could have stood up in court and made a stink about it, and maybe the judge would have, uh, you know, prevented this from happening or looked at it closer. But at the point where my daughter was 17, I was like, well, she's going to be 18 in a year. So, why do I stand in the way of this? But some people use this as a legal strategy, as a loophole, where um, I don't like what family court ruled. So I'm going to go down the hall to emancipation court, juvenile court, and see maybe they'll emancipate my child. Do you see those cases where as kids get older, they have more of a voice and that emancipation could be used as a, a tactic to kind of throw the family court order down the drain. I'm going to be really honest with you, mm -hmm. Burger. I've only seen that happen once and that was with you. And I've been doing this like 20 years. That was such an extreme thing to do. Um, I, I, I personally have never seen that happen. Except in your case. Ever. Okay, so I know we've talked about a lot of different things. I just want to talk about some other roles on the periphery. So we've talked about judges. We've talked about custody evaluators. Um, where do therapists come into the mix? How often are therapists used? Because I know there's some therapists that say, look, I'll see your child, but I will not testify in court. I want nothing to do with court. Don't have your lawyers talk to me. Like, I'm here to help your child. I am not here to get involved with the legal case that is ongoing. Well, I mean, that's therapy in its purest form, right? Right. And I think that parents need to understand when they're in this process that everything's not about them, right? Some things are not about winning or losing. Ultimately, if you're doing this right, you want what's in the best interest of your children. So having a therapist, you know, meet with your child, and have a rapport with your child and make your child feel safe and heard and all the things that a child needs. I mean, adults, anybody, people need to feel safe and heard and things like that. That's more important than having somebody who's going to take your side when you go down to the courthouse. I mean, a child should have a uh, outlet for where they can say how they feel, not take sides against one parent or the other, not feel guilty about saying dad's bad, mom's bad. You know, I hate my brother. I hate my sister. You know, I, I don't like our house, whatever. Without there being any repercussions. So I know it does frustrate a lot of parents 
that they aren't going to get input from that therapist. But in the end, if you think about it, why is the child going to open up to somebody they know is going to go into court and say what they said? Right. They want a safe place. They want a safe place and they absolutely should have one, especially when there's so much conflict at home. Shouldn't they have one outlet that's just theirs? I'm not a fan, personally, of a single therapist seeing multiple children in the same family. I know some therapists do it. I'm not a fan. I don't like it. I think that if we got to the point where the child is, has maybe not distress, but just needs an outlet, I'm not a fan of having any impediment to that relationship whether it be the, the knowledge that the therapist is going to report back to whomever, the court, the other parent, a teacher, you know, some authority figure. And also isn't going to maybe say, you know, to their brother in the next hour when they meet with them, hey, your sister said this, is it true? I'm not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of having therapists report to the court. Um, if it's... Family court services therapist, yes, that's their that's their job. That's what they do. That's a mechanism that the court uses and everybody's aware of what's happening. But as for a private therapist for that child, I I don't like it personally. I don't like it when they have to report to the court. I don't like it when they see other family members. And reasonable minds can disagree with me on that. That's my opinion. So we've spent most of this time talking about divorce cases where kids are involved. If there's no kids involved and it's just assets and it's two ah. partners trying to figure out the assets. I, love I would, that. Yeah, I would imagine mediation is probably very realistic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I've said many times, if I didn't have a child, mine would have been done really quickly. What happens is, like you've said to me many times, are you really going to spend, you know, $5,000 arguing over the $1,000 couch or the typewriter? Or like it gets to the point of your ego is involved. I want to win this piece of property or this asset. And you're spending far more money in legal fees arguing over it than what it's really worth. I mean, I have been, uh, I once bought a client Tupperware, a set of Tupperware because they were fighting over Tupperware and I just didn't feel like fighting over Tupperware because I didn't go to law school to fight over Tupperware and I just bought them Tupperware and I'm like, here's the Tupperware. Now you have a complete set of Tupperware. Move on with your life. And they still wanted to fight about the Tupperware, but I want that Tupperware. I was like, did your dead grandma give you that Tupperware? Because if not, it's plastic with a lid and it's fungible and Get new Tupperware. But there are some people who are so invested in the fight for the sake of the fight that they'll fight over absolutely anything. And to them, I say, don't complain about your bill. Or sending your kid to college. Yeah, because, you know, kids are yeah. expensive. And it would, you're, you'd be far better off spending your money on your children or a nice vacation or the car that you need for your midlife crisis than giving it to me because you want a particular set of Tupperware. Right. Um, okay. So again, if you're getting divorced without children, mediation is a real possibility because you're dividing assets. And 
put your ego aside if you can and don't just argue to argue, pick and choose your battles. And I would also say that's true if you do have kids. I've seen people who, you know, want to take their ex-spouse back to court for the most ridiculous things. Um, and all you're doing is racking up legal fees and you're making things more contentious with this co-parent that you're going to try and work with over the next however many years before the child turns 18. So if your premise is that it's better to mediate only financial issues and it's not best to mediate when you have children, I'd say the opposite is true. In my experience, you're better off mediating when there's children involved because this is about your children. In mediation, you have some power. You have the ability to make decisions. When you... When you've come to the end of the road, you didn't do mediation or you did and it failed and you have children, you're putting the biggest decisions of your life and your child's life in the hands of an absolute stranger. And yes, a trained stranger, a stranger who is educated and has gone through training and knows. So, but they're not the parent of your child. You're way better off, way better off going to mediation and not getting everything you want, but being an orbiter of what happens to your child as opposed to putting it in the hands of a stranger. So if your premise is that it's better to mediate financial issues and not custody, I would disagree with you. And I would think that the, at least in the state of California, we disagree with you altogether, which is why mediation is mandatory in custody cases. But I do believe, except as I mentioned earlier, that except in cases where there's the extreme disparity in power in a relationship, I think everybody, everybody except me and my bank account would be better off mediating. You bring up a really good point when you kind of flip that dynamic and explain it the way that you just did. It makes sense. The people I've talked to that have spent a few days mediating have all said to me, it's really hard to agree in the course of a few days about our kid and where they're going to be and how much time they're going to spend with each parent and who's paying for what. It's more complex than just saying, who gets the car, who gets the boat, who gets the couch. That's why I framed it the way that I did. But the way you just laid it out makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, they're your children. Spend more than a couple of days. And will mediators do that? Or do they get to a point where they go, well, I don't know if we're going they anywhere. Do. Or are we just spending our, spinning our tires here? I mean, everybody's got a limit, right? But mediators typically are trained and are, you know, their heart's in the right place. And they're, they want to they wanna succeed, right? Like for me, because I'm a litigator, success is, you know, I won, I lost mediators to some extent are the same, except it's not I won or I lost. It's, I got the job done. I did the job. I was successful in making these two people with really divergent uh, perspectives on a particular issue or multiple issues. I got them there. And, you know, nobody's happy. So that's probably a good deal. I don't know. I mean, that I'm, I might be being a little flippant about that, but I think that mediators their win is to get people to agree whether somebody got everything they wanted or didn't get, nobody gets everything they want ever. Um, 
that is them doing their job. And I think that a good mediator takes pride in doing a good job and doing a good job is getting a result that doesn't wind the parties and the children up in in court. Well, and I think also, and I know you do this and that's why you're a great lawyer, is if mediation isn't successful, you tell your client, like, this is what lies ahead. Like you just said, do you want a stranger to decide all of this for you? It's going to be very expensive. There's going to be sometimes custody evaluators and other people that need to get involved here. It's a long, expensive road if you can't figure things out in, in mediation. And some lawyers like you will tell their client that. Others will be like, ooh, yeah, this is exactly the scenario I wanted because this is going to be a long case and I can see the dollar signs coming up already. You know, I, you're right. Um, I am much more likely to lick my chops over a fight about, you know, RSUs, stock options, 401ks, things like that, than I am about a child. I am, I strongly encourage people to try to work it out amongst themselves about their children. That said, not always possible because it takes two to tango in a mediation setting. Let me ask you this, Amanda. I know we just have a few minutes left. The relationship with lawyers and judges and opposing counsel. I mean, I work in a relationship-based business. Most people who work in any corporation, relationships are important. How important are they for a lawyer like you with opposing counsel and with judges? Okay, so this is funny that you asked me that because I am typically, I, I explain this to clients all the time. I'm, you know, they come to me they're the first one of the spouses to go see a lawyer and they come to me and then, you know, they hire me and then I say, okay, well, I hope they, the other side gets a good lawyer. And they're like, I hope they don't get a lawyer at all. And I'm like, no, you don't, because that's going to cost you twice as much money because I can't really explain the law to other people. But it's, then I, I routinely have cases where the other side is unrepresented and then they just take that as license to run up my client's bill by you know, emailing me incessantly, calling me, asking me stupid questions, just mm. being, you know, obstreperous as possible. Um, I think the parties are best served by having two good lawyers because two good lawyers will sit down, put their heads together and figure it out or at least a lot of it out. And then it may be that we have to submit something to the court and have the court decide. But I think that both parties are best served by having two good lawyers. It is fun to go to trial and there's a less than stellar lawyer on the other side and just cream them. I mean, that's always fun to cream somebody and, you know, whether it's flag football or ultimate frisbee or, you know, chess, backgammon, whatever. Trial is equally amusing to, you know, put on an ass whooping. It's fun. But it's not, doesn't, re I mean, it does serve the client if the ass whooping is so one-sided that your client just gets everything they want. That's usually not the case. And it's more expensive because the other, it, it takes longer because the other party or attorney has to do things that you shouldn't have to like research basic stuff. I think everybody's best served by having two lawyers who 
don't hate each other, who can work well together and can get it done. Okay. With the judge, you have to go in front of judges probably more than once in your career. How much are you willing to go to the mat in a case when you know somewhere down the line, I'm going to see this judge again? Depends on if I'm on the side of the righteous. If I'm just making arguments for the sake of making arguments, I don't, I, look, there are, I don't know, we're up in the 300,000s in uh, bar numbers right now. Obviously, some of those people are no longer practicing and some of them are deceased or whatever. But you have a lot of options when you hire a lawyer, a lot of options. And I encourage people when they come to me for a consult to interview more than one lawyer. If you want a lawyer who's going to say whatever stupid thing that you want them to say, whether there's basis in law or fact, you just want them to say it, you can absolutely positively find a lawyer who will do that. I'm not that lawyer. My partners aren't those lawyers. We have, I think, I believe, we have a really good reputation in our community. I think you're better served having a lawyer, judges, all things being equal. Both sides being equally persuasive. It's a wobbler, as we call it in, in our, you know, go either way. All things being equal, you want to judge and say, I know, you know, Miss So-and-so, he's never led me astray before. I know that Mr. You know, Thorndall, my, one of my partners, is a straight shooter. He's never lied to me to the best of our knowledge. We don't do that, but... um Instead of flipping a coin, I'm just going to go with the one I know. Yeah, there's a value in having a good reputation in your community. Um, and I don't think it can be underestimated. And I'm personally not willing to throw my reputation away to argue about a particular set of Tupperware. I'm just, it's not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to walk into court and say that the sky is pink when it's clearly not. Right. And that's why you... Have been in business as long as you have. All right, we're going to end with this. Whenever I do a podcast, if I criticize something, people ask me, okay, if you're so smart, what's the solution? What would you do? And I know you and I have talked about this before, but I want to do this with you on here because you're the person (laughs) in the industry. So I want you to tell me that's realistic or it's pie in the sky. There's no way that would ever happen. Okay, is this me giving you actual legal advice on a specific thing or this is just a hypothetical? No, this is if someone came to me tomorrow and they said, Brian Berger, you are the czar of the family legal system. And you get to make these changes to the system. What changes would you make? So here's what they are. Number one. Shared custody is the default position of every court in the world unless there's proven cases of abuse that are taking place. Every study I've ever seen shows that children are far better off with two parents who are healthy than one. That's number one. And again, I was in Oregon. That is not the default position. So there's still some states where shared custody is not the default. Do you agree with that? Do I agree that there are some states the custody is not? No, but shared custody should be the default position. Yes, in my opinion, yes. With the disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional in any way, but I am a parent and I am a lawyer. 
Right. So, but what I'm suggesting here isn't like crazy and off the wall and like, oh my no. God, that's, that's unheard of. Okay. No. Number two. And we talked about this earlier. There should be a penalty against any person making false allegations or conducting parental alienation campaign against the other parent. It could be loss of custody. It could be financial. It could be supervised time with the child. But if you make false allegations and there's investigation that's done and it is shown this was just used to get a leg up by using DV, as you call it, against the other parent, there should be a penalty against the person making the false allegations. Agree. And the family court is not the only court. Right. Criminal. There are other courts you can ad- address your uh, complaints to and you can get things like money. Right. Um, number three, and I've only got four of these. Number three, loss of license for any therapist, custody evaluator, or anyone in the family legal system who is found to be unethical. I think that that should not be limited to therapists, custody evaluators. I think that should include doctors, lawyers, politicians, um, garbage collectors, yep. uh, bank tellers, uh, used car salesmen. I think there should be a penalty for lack of ethics in every aspect. Industry, every industry. Yeah. Okay, the last one, and I know we've talked about this, so you're going to roll your eyes, even though this is only on audio. Okay, let me take my glasses off so yeah, you take, can get a good... Yeah, let me, like, I, I want, let me see. close to my face so you can see me yep. spraying yep. my Amanda's eyes. Amanda's going to roll her eyes. All right, mm-hmm. this, is, this is out there, but again, if you're asking me to solve a problem, this is my solution to one of the problems. In the construction industry, whether it's the freeways or a big skyscraper, People are paid more money for getting the building done on time or even early. If it's early, they get bonused. The model of the legal system, not just the family legal system, but any legal system, um, is the longer the conflict, the more money the people involved make. The lawyers, custody evaluators, the court-ordered therapists. If you flip the model, and said to everyone in the family legal industry, or again, corporate law, the quicker you're able to solve this case, settle this case, the more you will get paid, like the construction model that I just laid out, it would free up so much time in the the court system. It would also give people like lawyers incentive to get things wrapped up versus the incentive of the business model now is the longer it goes on. Brian, I have an incentive to get it done. The quicker I get it done, the less I have to listen to my party's bitch. Um, (laughs) The problem with your model is, the problem with your model is I don't get to make the decisions by myself. I can make recommendations to clients, other attorneys, whomever, but if they won't settle, why should I be penalized? Because they're demonstrating some level of cuckoo-ness. 
Well, but I'm saying if you went into a case and it was known if this case is solved within 30 days, mediation or, you know, through the family court system, everyone's going to get more money for settling it in 30 days because you're freeing up the court system. You're Except for the person who has to agree to the settlement. They save money by not under your model. They save money by being as obstreperous as possible and dragging it out. Your model doesn't work. Your model encourages litigants to drag it out so they pay less money. So three out of four is bad, I guess. The eye roll for the last one was expected. I I knew that was coming. So that's why it's good that you took your glasses off so I could see the eye roll of the last recommendation that I made. Because it's wrong. Because because actually, in the model that we have now, you save money by settling quicker. I get less money, but the parties who make the ultimate decisions about whether they're going to settle or not, because while strategy and whether or not I'm going to conduct discovery or whatever is solely my purview, whether you settle or not is 100% always the client's decision. And so... They should be the ones who say, I get more money if I settle early. I pay more money if I settle later, as opposed to putting it on the lawyer. Yeah, there are some absolutely cracky lawyers in all aspects of the legal profession. Who just file things to file things, and then it, it totally. gets out of control. 100% true. Absolutely yeah. true. But I am not a... Most of the attorneys I'm close with in the profession uh, and I respect are not. We want to get a job done. We want to, you know, move on. The thing I like about family law is this, for the most part. There is a beginning and there is an end. I like it. I get in. There's a problem. I solve the problem. Everybody moves on with their lives. What I hate is six years down the road, we're fighting about, you know, Tupperware or oh, there you returned the bicycle to me, but you didn't return the helmet or some stupid stuff. Right. I hate that. So, I so stay like, out of court is your is your advice. Stay out of court. No, my advice, my advice is don't be an asshole. God, that if people just took like we've just done an hour and 15 minutes, if people just took the don't be an asshole advice, boy, that would change things. I would have far less pairs of shoes. That's true. That's yep. true. Well, I can't thank you enough for for this conversation and for uh, kind of helping our listeners understand the navigation of the family legal system. I think, you know, again, I'll use myself as an example. When I entered this arena of the family legal system, I had never been in any legal arena at all. So I was clueless on all of it. I had not one understanding of any of it. And okay, but you do understand, Brian, not to interrupt you, but I'm going to interrupt you because, hey, your case is not normal. I understand that, but I'm talking about just at the basic. If someone is contemplating getting divorced, there are some people that have never been in a legal system before of any kind. They've never gotten a traffic ticket. They've never been Good in criminal them. law. They've never been in a corporate case. So now you're going into the legal system and even if it gets settled mediation, you're still going into a system where you're like, okay, I've never been in this before. I need a better understanding of it. And, you know, hopefully today's conversation 
helps people a little bit. I'm sure they'll do further research, but at least it gives people some semblance of what it's like to navigate the the family legal system. And frankly, you know, I think one of the most important points you made today is once you can't work this out on your own and you turn it over to someone you don't know, the stranger, all bets are off. All bets are off. And if you and and again, sometimes it's only it takes two to tango. So you got to be dragged down the gravel road, like I said. But if you can work it out amicably and not go to the mat for as many years as I did, you're going to save a lot of money. You're going to be able to co-parent more effectively. It's going to be better for your child and it's going to be better all the way around. So be adults, try and figure out your problems on your own or with the help of a mediator and try not to inflame the already emotional situation. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on the Finding Yourself Single podcast. You were uh, uh, just a wealth of information and we really appreciate it. Anything for you, B. Email the hosts at single at gmail.com. Follow the Finding Yourself Single podcast on Twitter at findyourselfsng and on Instagram at findingyourselfsingle. Listen to all episodes of the Finding Yourself Single podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and podcast platforms everywhere. Finding Yourself Single is a production of Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.